I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Campsite Media. So my name is Peter Sedarius. I own the Town Square Diner in Wharton, New Jersey, and that's where we're sitting right now, having a cup of coffee and talking football. Pete's a handsome guy. He's clean cut with salt and pepper hair, and he's got an easy smile. His family's diner is classic Jersey style. There's a display of cakes and desserts at the front. There are framed photos and cutouts of good reviews on the walls, and the place smells like french fries. We're sitting in a final booth on a snowy day in January and Pete's reminiscing about the days when he played high school football in the late 80s. We had a, a customer come in today, and he goes, Pete, how you doing, how you been? He goes, yeah, I still remember the Randolph-Montclair game. Just straight up blue, guys, and he's 90 years old. You know, people just remember it, it was, it was unbelievable. And that was today? That was today, it was literally two hours ago. <laughs> that Randolph-Montclair game the customer was talking about, the one everyone still remembers, it was a high school state championship game in Montclair, New Jersey, more than three decades ago. Local newspapers called it the greatest high school football game ever played. On a warm day in December 1990, thousands of fans flooded into the bleachers at Montclair High School's Woodman Field. The New York Times covered the game. Local news anchors broadcasted from the sidelines in suits and ties. Even John Amos was there, the star of Good Times. Once the bleachers were full, people climbed trees and rooftops just to catch a glimpse of the field. My grandmother and my cousins came to watch the game from New York City. And they got there probably a half hour before kickoff, and the gates were closed. So they hopped the fence. You know, might have a little Greek grandmother. She's like seven years old, you know, short and chubby. She's climbing the fence to get into the game. Montclair Police Department estimates have the crowd at between 12 and 13,000 people today on a gorgeous day for football. The most important people are making their way out to midfield right now. They are the captains of the respective teams. Montclair in the blue, Randolph in the white. On one side, you had the Montclair Mounties, who were undefeated. Their players were huge. One of their linemen was almost 300 pounds, and they had nearly 60 players on the team. The Mounties were ranked number one in the state and number six in the nation. With one more win, they could become the first team in school history to finish the season 11-0. On the other side, you had Pete's team, the Randolph Rams. They were a bunch of skinny country boys. There's only 18 of them, most played offense and defense, so they had to play almost the whole game without a break. But this wasn't David versus Goliath. This was Goliath versus Goliath, because the Rams were also a juggernaut, so dominant 
they hadn't lost a game in nearly five years. With 48 straight wins, they were just one game away from clinching the state record for most consecutive victories. Montclair, the team with the big guys, was the favorite. They dominated for most of the game, and it looked like they were going to win. And the Montclair Mounties are one minute and 17 seconds away from winning the state championship. A lot of early celebration on the sideline. The clock goes to zero, and Montclair thought they'd won. Their fans literally poured from the bleachers onto the field, kissing and hugging. But then, all of a sudden, whistles. Somehow, the game wasn't over. And in the final seconds, something unbelievable happens. And the kick is good! Randolph wins! Randolph wins! 49th straight! Look at the celebration! And Randolph, miraculously, is it unbelievable? I just remember being ecstatic, you know, just running around like a crazy man, hugging everybody. It was just super happy that we won a state championship. The game became known as the miracle at Montclair, an upset so shocking, so confusing, so strange, that everyone was left asking, what just happened? Pete and his team became legends. We were honored at Randolph High School, and they inducted us into the Randolph Hall of Fame. We've all had seminal moments like this in our lives, an experience that felt so momentous in our little corner of the world, it became a light post in the story of who we are and how we got here. But if you came here wanting a story about the winners, this isn't it. It's not about the people who relive their glory and bask in those sunny memories. It's about the people who sit in the dark corner of the bar, haunted by what might have been. The people who lost the big game and the wreckage left behind. I've never felt that much pain in my life. That day, it broke something in me that I don't think could ever be healed, you know. It's very haunting. My soul left on that field. When Montclair lost, fans were furious. People were crying. There were fights in the parking lot. But they weren't just angry about losing. They were angry about why they lost. The calls at the end of the game just didn't seem to make sense. I saw the referees run out. Like they were being guarded by police. Like, I don't even know I should even talk about it. Um, like, I heard, like, mafia-type stuff. Too many things happened in that last uh, series of downs for it not to be deliberate. And as crazy as that may sound to an average person, it's like, hey, come on, bro, it's a freaking high school football game. Take it easy, will you? It's 30-something years ago, but if you're not a part of this, you won't get it. The mystery of what happened at the end of that game would spawn conspiracy theories and urban legends, and it would raise a bunch of questions that people are still debating more than three decades later. People told me Montclair's coach seemed to vanish. He really uh, disappeared in many ways, and I only saw him one other time after the game. And while Randolph's quarterback went on to coach in the NFL, the Mounties quarterback, an exceptional all-star athlete, never took another snap. I believe it really changed my brother's life. I just think if they would have won that game, things would have been different for him. I'm Matt Stanmeyer. I've spent four years trying to understand what really happened in those final seconds. We all lose in life. But what was it about this loss that seemed to devastate an entire community and change so many lives? This thing is not just football, bro. It's people's lives. 
From Campside Media, Entertainment One, and NJ Advanced Media, this is Lights Out, a story about the moments in life, big and small, that shape who we become and who we may never get the chance to be. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. A diva so many moments. This is episode one, In Our Blood. Maybe the last play of this game. Six seconds remain. Athletes or not, we all can look back on high school and remember something monumental that changed the course of our lives and stays with us even today. For me, it was basketball. I played for Southlake's High School in Reston, Virginia, just 20 minutes outside D.C. NCAA champions Michael Jackson and Grant Hill went to my school, and basketball just seemed to be in our town's DNA. When I was a junior, my team made it all the way to the state championship for the first time in school history even farther than those teams with Grant Hill and Michael Jackson. It seemed like our whole town made the four-hour drive down to this old arena called The Scope. It's where Dr. J played in the early 70s. Our team was down 22 points in the fourth quarter. So yeah, we were getting our asses kicked. But somehow, we stormed all the way back in the final period. Our coach switched us to a press, and then it was just steal after steal after steal. We were making every shot until we were down by two. We were about to pull off literally the biggest comeback in Virginia State Tournament history. But then, we missed two frantic shots just before the buzzer. And we lost, 71-68. to The defeat was profound, especially when you're all of 17. I remember the silent ride home, the darkness that fell over the team bus as we rumbled back up I-95. The sense that this pain was something that would linger for a long time. And it has. I'm now an investigative reporter for the Star Ledger and NJ.com. Basically, my job is to find compelling stories and then bring them to life in narrative form. Sort of like a magazine writer. When I first started, an editor told me all about the miracle at Montclair. Everywhere I went, it seemed like that game came up. But all those stories were about the winners. I wanted to write about the people who lost the big game. People like me. So finally, in 2019, I started working on a story about the Montclair Mounties. I've written stories that have won national awards and been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. But for some reason, no other story has had a bigger impact than this one. When I first started reporting, I called players from that 1990 Montclair team one by one. They're about 10 years older than me, but for the most part, we're in similar stages of life. They have kids of their own now, careers, mortgages, 529s, 401ks, they don't play football anymore, but nearly every one of them told me the game had stayed with them in different ways. Steve Bafico was a wide receiver on the team. He told me that championship is almost like his claim to fame. I take my own kids now to Woodman Field on a Saturday afternoon, and it's the first thing you think of when you walk on the field is the last time you know you were there as a player. At the same time, you know you're on the wrong side of it, but you're also part of a incredibly unique event the greatest game in New Jersey high school history, right? Jason Curry was also a wide receiver. He lives in California now, but mention of the game seems to always come up in group chats and Facebook posts. I don't think that people are talking about 30 years 
you know, 30 years ago, uh, you know, if, if in any way it did, it taught me a lesson about life. I mean, sometimes, despite all your best efforts, sometimes shit just don't go your way. Matt Bellis was the team's backup quarterback. His experience from that game is a huge theme in his work today. As a public speaker, Matt visits local high schools and talks about failure and how it can help you become resilient. Now, as someone who speaks to youth, I'm like, God, every disappointment that you go through, every trauma, like, all you can do is ask, what is this going to inspire? Let's talk about how you can use this, because you can't change the past. But the player that seemed most impacted by the game was Dyro Patterson. He was a starting defensive back on the team. Dyro told me football had saved his life before it broke his heart. In so many ways, it changed my life. Um, it kept me alive, because that's what all we need in life. Everyone has something to focus on, bad or good. And whatever you focus on the most, you'll become that. And that was my focus. It was football. Football healed the missing pieces in my life. I was especially interested in talking to Dairo because he was there from the beginning, and he had the strongest and clearest view of what happened and why. He didn't seem to care how crazy his theory sounded, just that it was all deeply unfair and possibly corrupt. But if I was going to really understand what went down on that field in 1990, I'd have to go back to the beginning before the boys even started high school. More after the break. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I went to visit Dairo this year on a warm spring morning at his home in suburban Atlanta. Sometimes I get a little nervous before an interview, but this time it just felt like I was going to see an old friend. When I got there, Dairo was standing in the door with a big smile. Normally, I'd open with a firm handshake, but it didn't feel right. So we dapped it up and hugged. How you doing? Hey. Come in. Come in. Come hey, how's it going? Good. Nice, nice to see you. Nice to meet you, man. Like five. His pit bull, Sapphire, even seemed excited. Be quiet. 
Jairo's 50 now, but he still looks youthful, like a suburban dad who stayed in pretty good shape. He's well-built with broad shoulders and a thick chest, and he wears a puffy beard that only has a few strands of gray. When I asked him to introduce himself, this is what he said. My name is Ose Naveen Olaudu Dairo. I'm a father of six. I live out in Furburn, Georgia. And I love myself, and not in an arrogant way, but in a self-care way. Dairo changed his name to Ose a few years ago. But he's okay with me calling him Dairo for this story because it's the name he went by when he was growing up. I spent more than nine hours with Dairo, but it didn't feel that long because he's so easy to talk to. He's a deep guy who laughs a lot, and I can pretty much ask him anything. He told me that when we first met back in 2019, I triggered a trauma he'd experienced in high school, one he tried to forget. And by trauma, he meant the game. I realized early on that Dairo is the test case for the power of sports in pockets of our country, for how life-altering a single game can be, because his life had been anything but a straight line. Dairo grew up in Newark, New Jersey, in a tight, close-knit family. Before he started playing football, he was a shy kid, kind of chubby, and he loved National Geographic. He remembers his older cousins loved to tease him. They used to have a song called uh, Roly Poly. Roly Poly, Daddy's Little Fatty. Eating bread and jelly two times a day. So that was the song he used to sing to me. He also had a stutter, which he said is the reason he loves to talk so much now. I couldn't look at you without stuttering. Because <laughs> my thoughts were going so fast, they couldn't come out as fast as I was thinking. You know, I hated school with every breath in my being because I might get called on. You know, you say, I got to call it, you know, I want you to read chapter one. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, and, and you're there and you're reading something word by word and it's not flowing. You know, John went to the store and the store was very big. And I'm like, John went to... So, and then all the kids are looking at you like, <laughs> so you're pouring sweat. <laughs> that infectious chuckle you hear from Dairo is really endearing, and it makes our conversation feel light, even when we're talking about hard stuff. But it's actually more like a defense mechanism, because in reality, the childhood he's describing was pretty tough. When Dairo's around seven years old, his parents separate. At that age, he doesn't know the specifics just that there are no more big family gatherings or vacations to Disney World. All of a sudden it stopped, right? It's like, okay, they're not liking each other anymore. And as a six and seven year old, you're like, why are we not having any fun anymore? Years later, he learned that things had gotten violent between his parents and that his dad had physically assaulted his mom. His mom wanted to take the kids and leave, but his dad wasn't having it. At some point, Dairo's mom tells her brother that her husband won't accept the relationship being over. So Dairo's uncle confronts his father. If you ever watch National Geographic, the two lions come together, right? And <laughs> they're going to bump heads, you know? They're not going to sit down and, hey, let's grab a mic and, and let's have a, a, a nice conversation. No, they, they went and did what men do. It's heavy stuff, right? Especially for a little kid. Mom and dad are bickering. Dad and uncle are brawling. Instead of watching movies with his dad, Dairo spends a lot of time alone in his room, wondering why he wasn't around anymore. He didn't sit down and, and give me life lessons or lecture me. He just sat there. 
And it was just him being there when I wanted him to be there. Dyra wouldn't see his dad for years. He couldn't understand what he'd done wrong, but things are never the same between them. I would talk to him via phone, and uh, he would say, hey, I'm gonna come see you. And I'm excited, I'm excited. I'm sitting outside waiting for him to come. My mom says, come in the house. I said, no, I'm waiting for my dad. He said, it's coming. But I've been outside for six hours waiting for him to come because his word was God. So for years, I had a lot of hate for him, but I wasn't angry. I was hurt. Abandonment, that's the feeling that I felt. Dairo's weight and stutter get worse because of all the instability and stress from his parents' breakup. But Dairo says his mom isn't the kind of mom you could talk to about feelings. She was tough, and she wanted her kids to be tough. So after school, Dairo went out in search of what he couldn't get at home, and he finds a measure of it in the projects where his family is living in Newark. And for context, this is Newark in the 1980s, at the height of the crack epidemic. Homicides were at an all-time high, and nearly a third of the city's residents were living below the poverty line. Put bluntly, trouble isn't hard to find when Dairo meets a group of boys. And like Dairo, they're a little lost and a little empty. Their fathers are gone too, and they're also acting out, egging cars, throwing rocks at buses. Before long, the older kids start to get involved in more serious stuff around the neighborhood, a little worse than throwing rocks and eggs. One time, they grab an old woman's purse on the street. When they open it, they realize she didn't have a ton of money, but that doesn't mean it wasn't worth it. It was like a thrill, like like I did something so wrong, but I felt good because I felt empowered. The mischief escalates from there until eventually someone gets hurt. They were talking about it, like it was a fight or something like that, and they showed the knife. And it was like, well, give it to Dairo and let him hold it so when they come search us, they're not going to search them. And I was quickly like, yeah, I ain't going to tell nobody. <laughs> so uh, I felt I-, I leveled up. I was at a high ranking. Dairo can still remember the knife. So it was ivory on one side of it, and then it was like on the other side, it was a mahogany color. And then, you know, you opened it, you know, like a switched open like that. And it didn't have any blood or anything like that, but I, that was the knife that was used. The fight wasn't fatal, and Dairo doesn't know exactly how it was used, but he takes the knife, and his mom finds out. She's livid and really scared all at once. He's only five or six. He still has baby teeth, and he has a knife? For Dairo's mom, this is the last straw. Something has to change. They're getting out of Newark. Dairo doesn't remember packing up or getting all their things together. He just remembers that sometime in the early 80s, him and his mom and his sister hop in the car and go for a drive to a new place with a lot more trees and grass. And I was like, oh my goodness. It's like, because I knew it was something different because the ride was far. I'm like, wow, we're driving far. Eventually, he finds out where they are, someplace called Montclair. Dyro's never heard of the town, and he doesn't know anything about it. He only knows that he doesn't like it because it isn't home. And even though it's only 10 miles north of Newark, the communities couldn't be more different. A lot of white people. I'm like, wow, different color people. It wasn't just black people. Black, white, Chinese. Oh, like... Oh, what's going on? <laughs> why, why, why so many difficulties here? <laughs> but there's something else that's special about Montclair. 
This place is obsessed with football. The varsity players were treated like celebrities. And someone told me back in the day, nurses at the local hospital would put stuffed footballs in the cribs of all the newborns. Just all our lives, you know, it's just something that we've done. You go to school, you play football. Uh, you know, uh, football, football, football. It was in our blood. We had a lot of neighborhood teams. So there would be like Grove Street versus Greenwood Avenue, Greenwood Avenue against the Hollow. You had Maple Avenue. So there were streets that had teams and we would go down to Grove Field and play games there as well as the parking lot at the, at the post office. So any parking lot, basically. And we actually used to play on Kajano's funeral home uh, lawn on the front of the funeral home. There would be 50 kids from each street trying to play, you know, trying to wait on the sideline. So it became like a huge game to do that. And we would play out there for hours. Most of those kids played for the town's youth football league, the Cobras. You could spot the team's logo on the bumper of nearly every minivan in Montclair. It's a blue and white King Cobra, mouth open, the fangs are out, and it's in striking position. So when Dairo's mom notices he's struggling and missing his dad, she gets an idea. He needs something productive, something to channel all that anger and get him out of the house. She said no to boxing because I was putting holes in the wall. So boxing was out, and in the summer of 1982... She signs Dyro up for the Cobras. They go pick up some used equipment in the musty basement of an old Victorian-style home. Dyro gets his pants, shoulder pads, helmet, and his first ever jockstrap. And I was so happy to have a jockstrap with a cup. <laughs> I think I slept with some of my equipment on that night, and uh, I couldn't wait to play. And for the first time in a long time, Dyro has something to look forward to. He latches onto a dream. Maybe football is his thing. Maybe if he gets really good, he can be a star. And isn't that relatable? My oldest son is seven and in the second grade. He dreams of playing in the NBA. My wife and I went to his school this year for a parent-teacher conference. And there it was, written in bubble letters on a drawing of a big orange basketball hanging in the hallway. My first urge was to tell him it's just not realistic. Trust me, I know from experience find another dream. But I stopped myself, because who would I be to put limits on what he can be? We all need dreams. We need hope, something to aspire to. Those goals, however crazy, help us figure out what we're good at, what we like, and what we don't like. But at the same time, our dreams make us vulnerable to pain, humiliation, failure, even trauma. That's something Dairo and many other Mounties will come to learn in due time. Because what Dairo doesn't realize is, he's about to enter a world where football isn't just football, where playing the sport isn't always a game, where the people are obsessed with winning at all costs, and where losing is like a stain that you can never get rid of. This new dream is about to set him on a collision course for one of the worst injustices of his life. This season on Lights Out. I rewind, 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 rewind. So many times I, I didn't I didn't understand. We didn't make a bad call. We didn't fumble the ball. We won the game. And they took it from us. There is no way anyone's gonna tell me, other than Jesus Christ himself, wasn't that way. Because I was there. It just feels like you could put your all into everything. Then at the end of your journey, it's taken from you. You know, then you, you, you think it's like, well, why? <laughs> why did I even bother? You have this incredible set of expectations that weigh quite heavily on you as a player. That pressure can crush you. After the game, it's kind of like he vanished. I don't know what the heck happened. Like, where's Ponton? What happened to Ponton? 
it impacted me because I wanted to be a champion. But just imagine 30 years of doors being closed. Lights Out is a production of Campside Media and Entertainment One in association with NJ Advanced Media and XTR. This series was reported and hosted by me, Matt Stanmeyer. Naomi Brauner is the senior producer, and Kim Baikama is the associate producer. Additional production support from Natalia Winkleman and Campside senior producer, Lindsay Kilbride. Our story editor and executive producer is Emily Martinez. Mixing, sound design, and original music by Ewan Leitremuen. This series was fact-checked by Lauren Vespoli and Matt Giles. Special thanks to Robert Fox, Chris Kelly, Steve Politti, Anthony Pacillo, Jeff McGrath, and Paul Spahala. A special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, and Destiny Dingle. Our executive producers are Lee Eisenberg from A Piece of Work, Justin Lacob from XTR, and from Campside Media, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Lights Out, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.